You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, winner of the Share Care Emmy Award for Social Storytelling and the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hey, y'all, and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and today I've got a guest that's with us, and the reason I have a guest is because I want to give you a break from just my prattling along and listening to my voice, but not just that, not just a break for your ears, but also a chance that I get to learn. So uh, I, I will preface it with this. I reached out, I have somebody that sent an email to me uh, and it was a nutrition question and it was like a nutrition email. There's a whole bunch of questions and I was like, I've got a great idea. I need to get Brad Dieter on here and I'm going to get him on. And it took us a while to get around to it and I cannot find the email. I don't know if it was an email or a, a, a DM or anyway lost. So now I have a wonderful guest that's here with me today, and I don't have the email that I gotten the guest for. With that said, I still have lots of questions. So welcome, my friend, my guest, Brad Dieter. What's going on, man? Not much, man. It's uh, it's great to see you again, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the yeah. invite. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to have you on. It's been a while. I think we, we're catching up a little bit before the show, and um when you said it was like, it's been a couple of years, I was like, man, it couldn't possibly have been a couple of years. Uh, and then I realized I had you on kind of right after the certified nutrition coaching course. And uh, that's been a couple of years. And apparently they've brought you back for numerous things that we've also done. So I'll let you break that down. Yeah, it's crazy to think that that was four or five years ago now. Um, it must've been, yeah, 2018, 2019 when we were working on the, the CNC course. And then since then I've been involved in the sports nutrition course, the CSNC, uh, the virtual coaching course, the, uh, physique and bodybuilding course, the certified wellness core coach course. So, um, been very fortunate to be involved in the NASM ecosystem for, uh, several of the big projects. So it's, it's a great group of people to work with and it's been a ton of fun. So Super thankful, and uh, you guys always do a great job. Awesome. Thank you. Well, obviously, we have you back, so clearly you always <laughs> do a great job, too. So with that being said, uh, give us a little bit about who you are, who, your background, because if um, you know if they haven't listened to that episode two years ago, anytime recently, then they don't know. Yeah, uh, I'll try to keep it short. So my background, um, you know, I grew up as a kid, always wanting to be a doctor, kind of started my very early academic career, still wanting to be a physician, um, ended up spending a lot of times, a lot of time in hospitals and healthcare settings and realized that really just wasn't the kind of day-to-day -day life I wanted. Um, so I thought maybe I would be a better resource in kind of the academic medicine world, do research. Uh, so I went back to grad school, uh, went through that route, did my, uh, postdoc, um, did a lot of really great work, especially in the metabolism, diabetes area, um, kind of helped develop some some drugs. Uh, we were one of the labs that was working pretty heavily on um, the GLP-1 drugs in, in kidneys. Um, nice. So we did a lot of the pioneering, some of the pioneering work in the kidney space on that. Um, but then just kind of found that I wanted to be more involved with people. Um, the lab was great, loved it, but really enjoyed working with people. So started in the coaching space. Um, and then have kind of built a couple companies in the coaching space. Um, and now I currently am the chief operating officer at Macros Inc. 
Uh, we work directly with clients. Uh, we've got about 120 coaches who work with us. Uh, we do direct to consumer nutrition coaching and uh, have been running that and writing content and speaking and kind of just building a career in that area. Man, I love it. Well, I love that. Uh, you got a lot of details about macros. And so I'm just going to run some stuff by <laughs> you because we get this uh, quite a bit, which is, I think it's kind of funny because we hear about fat and carbs and they've both been somewhat vilified in the media and diet culture and whatnot. Um, but not protein, right? So my question is why not protein? <laughs> like, Why hasn't the media been like protein? Right? What is it about protein that makes protein unvilifiable up to this point? You know, I think it's just, uh, kind of just the way the culture swings around back and forth of what's the hot topic. I mean, I think in the, you know, in the nineties, people were talking about protein and kidneys and things like that. We kind of have since learned that, um, you know, it's not quite as uh, big of an issue as people thought. And then it became very popular because we needed much higher protein diets. Um, and now we've kind of developed a body of research around it. It's really not super controversial anymore. Um, you know, we have really good data, both in kind of laboratory studies, real world studies, um, you know, clinical trials that we've really kind of gotten a good understanding of how our body handles protein, how it affects our, you know, society, total calorie intake, you know, the different ranges of protein for athletes. Um, we've gotten some really good data on that. And so I think it's, I wouldn't say it's common knowledge, but there's not a lot of real controversy around it as much as there is kind of some of the other macronutrients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are, what are the goods on, on protein? I know that you, you said, um, society and I, is there, is there really a thermogenic effect of, of food? Like, is there like the, the amount of calories that people, and, and does it matter? I don't know, but the, the, the calories it takes to metabolize and get those calories. Yeah. You know, this is like a perfect example of, I think sometimes where we fall into a trap, especially in kind of popular culture media where something can be true and accurate, but not really matter that much. Um, so I think when we talk about, you know, higher protein diets definitely have a larger thermic effect of food, right? It does, it does require more calories to digest, process, convert protein into either stored amino acids or, you know, dietary carbohydrate or, um, stored carbohydrates, excuse me. It definitely does take more energy, but whether that amount actually contributes to meaningful changes in our calorie balance, it really doesn't, right? So it's kind of one of those situations where something can be technically true, but not actually matter that much for the average person. Yeah, I see that. I, I feel like that's like the equivalent of maybe epoch right like epoch matters but it doesn't matter that much like it helps yeah. but it doesn't help that much uh and sometimes people are like oh you know you the epoch that um that for those of you who don't know the 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 amount of calories you burn post workout right and you know it helps but it's not what some people say, like there's a metabolic engine that's going and, and, and it stays elevated, but it's not necessarily like the winning formula. Uh, and so I think what you're saying is the same thing here, like protein itself isn't like, hey, it's four calories, but because of all it takes to get those calories, it's actually one, right? Like uh, that's not what you're saying. 
No, it's maybe like 3.95 is probably. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know I mean, it's like, right, it's gotcha. something like that. Like, that's not the actual number, but like when you think about it in your head, you know, it's such a small amount of your total daily calorie expenditure and how you think about how your body uses calories and the levers you can pull. You know, it's such a minimally important part of how you make decisions. Yeah, gotcha. Gotcha. It's a, also, is it, you know, is uh, I think there might be a lot more potential joy around some fats and carbs <laughs> that it's yep. easier to vilify things that make you happy yeah. uh, <laughs> and that might be a part of it as well yeah exactly um you know and i think when we look at most of you know the the popular media books and even the research studies now is those two have been given the vast majority of the attention over the last sure. 20, 30 years, right? I think we've had, um, you know, big, big swings um, from the 90s where it was kind of lower fat diets were really popular because of all the cardiovascular research that was going on. Um, you know, and now we come into the obesity epidemic and, you know, rising, uh, you know, rates of diabetes carbohydrate metabolism is related to those things. So those start to become more popular. So we start to swing to low carbohydrate diets, whether it actually affects those diseases or not is, is a separate discussion, but like you kind of see the waves of what's popularized, what becomes a focus of research, what we're learning about. And then eventually once all of that fleshes itself out, it's like, let's go move on to the next topic. Yeah, interesting. So as a as a researcher, and I know you, you did a lot of research, did did you find that uh I don't know, I just see this sometimes, like here's the new fad, here's the the newest exercise modality, and then but there's no research about it. And then research is like, hey, guess everybody's doing this thing. Like maybe we should look at it and see if it's there. Do you find that with uh in the world of nutrition? Do you like it kind of give it a while for a fad to to have some staying power or to reach uh, a tipping point of some sort where you're like, I guess we need to start looking into this and researching it. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's really interesting because sometimes the research leads to the fad diets and sometimes the fad diets lead to the research. Um, mm. Like I think, you know, the research in cardiovascular disease kind of led the, the low fat diet craze Conversely, I think some of the very early research in intermittent fasting led to the adoption of that and people, you know, eating that way. So it's it's yeah. always the origin of like fads and how they become popular is always just so interesting. You never know what's what's going to become the thing this year. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Let me let me ask you about something that I wish was probably a bit more in the fad zone or more in the uh, not fad. I wish that it was more uh, taken up by yeah. uh, population is fiber. So I'm hearing something that's interesting and I want to run it by you because I think you would probably know is um and I've seen this on several social media posts. Oh, social media. <laughs> uh, and it's like the it talks about fiber losing its fiberness in like a smoothie, right? So if I if I blend up something, right, my my smoothie, which has you know my greens in it, it's got some uh, some fruits in it, some frozen fruits that I throw in, maybe a little milk or OJ to put some liquid in there. Um, but then I 
I've heard, and I don't know if you know this or not, but like that the blending up of it um, makes the fiber lose some of its fiberness. And I don't even know what fiberness means. I made that up. Uh, but just running it by, you want to know what your your understanding of that is. We'll, uh, we'll add that word to the, the dictionary, which I think this year's like word of the year was Riz or something. Which Riz! I'm Riz. so apparently I'm so old now. I don't even know what these words mean. Um, oh, well, then you're L Riz. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, that, that is a good question. Um, I've never actually like done the research on that. I would imagine there's maybe a very small amount of truth to that. But when you think about the reason that fiber is fiber to our body is because we don't have the enzymes to break down the type of bonds that occur in fiber, right? Mm. So whether your blender is breaking up those bonds, it is possible that maybe it's very long fiber chains that the blender is maybe taking them from very short ones or very long ones to slightly shorter ones, but it won't change the fact that we can't enzymatically cleave those bonds, right? Um, the difference is like starch, like when we consume like a potato, it's a long, you know, polysaccharide, but those bonds, we have the, enzymes that break it up into smaller carbohydrates, right? The, the plant fiber is also a polysaccharide. It's a bunch of sugars, but the way those bonds are, we just don't have the enzymes to break it down. So I would imagine even if you're making them shorter, you're, it's not really changing how your body processes the fiber, so to speak. Okay. Uh, so let me run something else. Another similar kind of concept. Um, the people love this idea of, um, the idea but like denaturing proteins and they go oh don't cook this or don't do that because it denatures a protein and i think denaturing protein is probably a normal thing that occurs um but it doesn't doesn't take or does it uh remove any of the amino acids that are in there like if it denatures what does that mean to us if we eat something yeah, so that's a that's a great question. And that's actually part of the normal process of protein digestion. So when you consume a protein, a lot of times it's basically a long chain of amino acids that's kind of like structurally balled up. And the mm. denaturing process basically just kind of unravels that, right? That can happen through heat. It can happen through exposure to acid. It can happen through, um, you know, enzymes that are there that do that and your body denatures it so when you consume protein you obviously chew it up in your mouth it goes into your stomach the acid denatures it um, and then as it goes into your you know your gi tract once it's past your your stomach you start to have all these enzymes that break it down into smaller chunks of amino acids until it's eventually like one or two amino acids and then your body absorbs it so denaturing is part of the process and sometimes denaturing it when you're cooking actually makes it more bioavailable, right? So if you look at, I think there was a there was some research done. They basically took people and had them consume raw eggs like Rocky, right? Crack them in the crack them in the glass and chug them because it's better for your body. And then they had them consume cooked eggs, and you actually absorb more of the protein from the cooked eggs than the raw eggs. So it's Booyah. yeah. So denaturing it sometimes actually makes it. Um, easier to absorb. And so when you're actually, when you cook an egg and the egg yolk goes from clear to white or the egg white goes from clear to white, that's, that's, it's a denaturing process is what you're seeing. It changes the optical characteristics yeah. of the protein. 
Okay. So my specialty is certainly not nutrition, but I basically said that far less eloquently. So I basically, <laughs> you basically backed up my, my poster dunk on somebody. I was like, actually, when we eat it denatures and in my mind, I was like, does it? <laughs> so did it really, or did I make that up? You, you had the, uh, the wisdom to take a lot of words and boil it into a few, which is better than I did. So <laughs> Maybe, maybe that's the case. Uh, well, <clears throat> let's follow the the path we've got going on here. So we've, you know, we're talking about consuming food, and you've mentioned right, like we eat it, and, and uh, then it, we we start the the process with the acids, and it gets into our gut. And uh, there's a lot, man. There's a lot of information on gut and gut health and the microbiome. What's What's real and what's not? I mean, should we be paying attention to that? Should that be on our radar legitimately? Or should we just be like, nah, we're good? Yeah, so I would say I will, uh, I'll preface this by saying I am not a microbiome expert. Um, I've done a lot of reading in that area, but I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. So if any experts want to email me after this and tell me I'm crazy, that's great. <laughs> so the microbiome is really complicated. Right. I think that's the first place to understand. And we've kind of been sold a narrative by the media <clears throat> that very simple, broad strokes interventions can solve a bunch of problems. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody's microbiome is like a fingerprint. Right. So, like, Rick, yours and mine, very different. Even if you and I ate the same foods every day, it'd be very different because you live in New York. And I live in Washington, right? <clears throat> so what I'm exposed to is very different. So my microbiome looks way different. And so a lot of these kind of over-the-counter interventions, like if you buy prebiotics, which are basically like food for your microbiome, they're basically quasi-digestible fibers that your microbiome chews up. <clears throat> It'll help grow the bacteria you have. Then you have probiotics, which are basically live culture. You basically just add new bacteria um, to your microbiome. If you take a prebiotic, you're going to grow different bacteria than I would. If you supplement with probiotics, the same probiotics as I would, it would change your microbiome profile different than it would change mine. Right? So it's so individualized and so complicated. We don't have great intervention data at like a health system level. That's really useful for people. Um, and we actually see this, if you look at the microbiome research in people, like I remember the, like, like fecal transplants were very popular for yeah. a while, um, where they basically just take microbiome from somebody else and transplant it into somebody else. That research hasn't really borne out at large populations, right? Individuals show benefit, but not at scale. It's because we haven't figured out how to individualize these treatments yet. Now, individual practitioners who have really good empirical knowledge of like, I've done this with this person based on my experience. There's a lot of value there that we haven't, we haven't institutionalized that knowledge and unlocked it yet. And so I think it's going to take us a long time um, to do that. So that's, that's going to be a big challenge for what we do. Now I will say it's an, it's a very important part of our health. We just mm, haven't really okay. cracked the code on how we 
how we institutionalize that knowledge and deliver it at scale. It's just, it's a very difficult problem to, to unwind. Well, if we go back to what I was saying before, I, I believe this is one of those things where now that we're seeing so much more of the conversation taking place around microbiome, are we now seeing more research gearing towards the microbiome? Yeah, we've seen a big uptick in microbiome research, yeah. especially over the last probably 10 years or so. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if I, if I look something up on microbiome and I go to PubMed, that um, and, and this might be like a publishing bias, but I tend to only find things that are confirming uh, an outcome, <laughs> right? So yeah uh, but but it seems like there's always something there's a there's a positive outcome and you know yeah. generally if there's a negative outcome it doesn't it's not the one getting published the ones getting published are the ones that are showing something not the ones that are showing nothing which also kind of makes sense but uh it gives us a, maybe a false understanding of the 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 amount of data that's been brought in but you know i'm i'm out there trying to figure some stuff out and i'm and i'm finding things but i don't know you know my my PubMed search is quite the the one that's going to yield the the copious amounts of knowledge that I would need to answer questions. Yep. Hey, I'm in the same boat. A lot of that stuff's yeah. so over my head. I read those papers and I'm like, I don't know what any of these words mean, but let's let's hope the abstract's <laughs> correct. That's kind of how I feel sometimes. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I'll read the abstract and I'm like, is there an abstract for the abstract? Because I don't know. Yeah. It's is. a lot of like very hardcore genetic biostatistics and like i'm like this is this is some intense stuff yeah all right I, and i always read it people ask me questions i'm like hey listen i'm a personal trainer <laughs> like i don't i don't know like <laughs> the stuff that that means means nothing to me as a fitness professional i just need kind of an overview data yeah. um with that being said i want to uh i'm going to tell you a story and it's funny because I always refer to my stories when somebody has a story that's a little out of the box. I always refer to it as a Jeremy story because I have a friend named Jeremy that is the most out of the box guy that you will ever meet in your life. He's always got something going on that uh, and a unique perspective on it. So I can come up with a story or you can tell me something and I can be like, well, my friend Jeremy and, and I can give a caveat to it. Well, I have a Jeremy story, but this is a real Jeremy story, and I find it fascinating. Jeremy, my friend, is uh, is going through a very big transformational process where he is trying to lose 50 pounds, and he's trying to do it in a very short amount of time. Um, I'm seeing in the last... 28 days he's lost about 30 pounds but my concern and he's got he's got the weight to lose um so i think that's important to point out as well but um it's very fast and at, at that obviously there's uh you know people in his life that are like here's this kind of cleanse and here's this this diet that you go on that's incredibly restrictive and um my concern which is why I want to run this by you is not so much his concern, which is, am I going to have skin, you know, leftover like skin just hanging there. And I'm like, will you have a metabolism? Like, that's what I'm, I'm interested in. That's what I want to know. Like, are you doing something that's short term and it's getting you the visual results that you're wanting and it's doing it within a time frame that you've escalated 
Um, and he's got a team around him that's helping like support him and his fitness is there. Like he's getting his exercise and stuff like that, but it's a lot of weight and it's real fast. And I'm curious, Brad, if you know, if, if restricting diet like this for let's say two months is something that could adversely affect a, the prolonged metabolism. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of layers to this answer. So, um, mm. I'll try not to, to go on too long for it, but I think there's a lot of important pieces to this question. Um, to answer your question directly, short-term, fairly aggressive dieting doesn't appear to have long-term ramifications for what we'll call your resting metabolic rate. Okay. Um, so I think that that's the first, so just kind of directly to answer your question, um, no, right? And there's a lot of Does data. Short term have a a window when you say short term. Um, months, right? Okay. I think. All right, good. Yeah, good. Yeah, months. Um, but but there's a lot of important kind of caveats to that answer. Um, you know, one is if we kind of step back and we look at your friend Jeremy at like the whole person level, the way that I think about these things is one the overall health risks that Jeremy carries by having an extra 50 pounds, right? Every day that he wakes up with that, those risks compound over time, right? So it's like, hey, if my, if at this BMI, my risk of my lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease is 70%, every day he wakes up with that, that risk compounds, right? So if he can lose a lot of weight very quickly, he reduces that risk quickly and he loses the compounding risk. So and I think that's really important for people to like, hey, even if he loses it quick, maybe it's not hyper sustainable, but at least we're reducing risk immediately and we're getting the compounding benefits of that risk. So I think that's an important piece and I think that's a big benefit. Um, the second piece to that is a lot of the research does show that people who can lose a substantial amount of weight quickly have better long-term buy-in than people who lose weight very slowly. So if this can be kind of a kickstart to him maintaining this over time, yeah. I think that's also great. The negative sides of it are a lot of times when you have that substantial weight loss that quick, the ratio of weight loss of lean mass and fat mass generally isn't ideal, right? So he's probably losing a lot of lean body tissue, specifically like skeletal muscle, um, you know, maybe some some organ tissue, things like that. Probably organ tissue. Yeah. So really? at, yep. Um so as you lose that weight that quickly, you're losing more lean tissue than you are fat mass, right? And there there's a couple issues with that. One is if he regains his weight, right? Like let's say he loses the 30 pounds, some of that's lean tissue. He stops his exercise. He starts eating more again. And that 30 pounds come back. That's basically going to be mostly body fat, right? So now he's at the same weight again with a worse body composition. So you've got to be mindful of that long-term of just like, Hey, what can I do to maintain this? Or if I'm going to be regaining the weight, can I make sure that some of that that comes back as the lean mass of my body composition is the same. Um, the second piece is you do lose a bit of what I like to call your metabolic sink when you lose that much lean mass, right? So your skeletal muscle is a very large metabolic sink for glucose and fatty acids, right? So if you lose 30 pounds and half of that is lean 
lean body mass, you're losing about 15 pounds of tissue that can absorb, you know, the excess energy of like overeating, right? So your glucose sink from a large mm. meal, your fatty acid sink from a large meal or a vacation or things like that. So your risk of having metabolic issues with weight regain also becomes exaggerated. So those are the things to kind of consider both on the plus side and the negative side um, with rapid weight loss like that. Okay. All right. Well, I, I feel a bit more at ease with, with you sharing this because I'm, I'm really, I'm cheering him on, right? Yeah. Like I want him to, to do what he's doing and he's proud and I'm proud of him for doing what he's doing. Um, but there was some concern. So you've allayed some of those concerns and, and some of the, um, the, the, the cons to go along with it didn't seem at least as you were speaking them out, did not seem to outweigh the benefits that were coming from what he was going through. So I just, I was like, if this dude's eaten like a papaya a day, and you know, like just a couple of bites of something, and then he's losing weight rapidly. What's it gonna be like when he puts, you know, a slice of pizza back in his body, right? And uh, and so I was, I'm concerned about what what changes may happen going forward once he shifts away from this is the cleanse or this is the diet, and this is these are the big jump starts to. Now I've got to go back to a lifestyle. And of course, is it easier now to fall back into my old lifestyle? Or did you experience such a euphoric shock to your system that you've decided that I'm going to eat just papaya? You know, whatever, whatever. Like, uh, you know, yeah. I'm concerned about that. And I think one of the big difficult pieces that you just brought up is when you adopt a fairly extreme approach to lose weight that quickly you've basically given yourself a massive margin of error with your daily lifestyle, right? Like you can skip the gym four or five days a week. You can not walk as much. Like you can, if you're doing that extreme of a dietary intervention, you're going to lose weight regardless, right? It's kind right, of like, yeah. no matter what you do, you're, you're going to lose weight until you reach, you know, a level where you're not going to lose weight anymore because you've lost so much weight. The hard part is when you go back to a normal approach, you haven't learned what my actual margin of error is in a given day of following a nutrition plan and still get success, right? If you're losing weight more slowly and you're just like, hey, this is my this is my dietary intake for the day. And I know that if I like if I have a bad week where I skip the gym or I don't walk as much or I, I kind of overeat this week a little bit, like I go have the pizza, like you learn how those things affect your results. But if you're, if you're kind of crash dieting, you have such a large calorie margin of error. It's like probably 2,500, 3000 calories a day that if he's just in a deficit, it's like, Hey man, right. like, I have such a big margin of error. But if it's, if you're trying to lose weight at a pound a week and it's a 500 calorie a day, roughly deficit, like your margin of error is now very small and you haven't learned what that's like in mm -hmm. your real life. Yeah. You know, just speaking to that, where it comes to, to weight loss and nutrition, I, I've been seeing this in my, my current world, because what'll happen is I am, I'm still trying to figure out my exercise. And have, for those of you who don't know, I'm insulin dependent diabetic, where I'll have insulin, but sometimes my exercise drops my insulin. I eat more than I plan to eat. 
um, because I'm trying to get carbs back into my body. And so since I started that uh, and still trying to figure it out, I've first of all, I gained a lot of weight simply because the calories that I've been eating count <laughs> instead of being <laughs> like urinated out of my system because yep. I can't absorb those calories. Um, so I've gained weight. With that said, I am in a process now where I feel comfortable. I like like the size. I feel like I'm filling out my, my leg workouts are feeling better. Like I'm putting some muscles on my legs and, but I still have some belly fat. And I've noticed this about me is that my diet would be at a deficit for the week. And I'm pretty sure at the weekend, because I'm home all day, that just those extra snacks, the extra food that I eat, maybe to the point where I go a little bit beyond, you know, I go to the point of being like, I'm full because I've really enjoyed this meal. Um, I, I feel like I do what a lot of people think they're not doing, which is at a deficit, but then don't realize that the extra 500, you know, calories a day, two days a week may undo all the doing you did leading up to that. That is probably the most common thing we see in the real world with people mm. is days of great work, days of no accountability and things just go out the window and I have no idea what happened. Um, so I think that that's a big piece for people. And I, I would imagine for somebody like you, you know, working during the week, you're also on your feet and you're moving a lot. And then on the weekends, you're probably like, ah, this couch is great. Somebody (laughs) get me a snack and bring it over here. I'm not getting up off the couch. Right. So it's like, you kind of get the double whammy of sure. Maybe you get a a 20 minutes extra at the gym on the weekend because you don't have to be at a meeting, but you're probably not walking around. You're probably not doing whatever. So your energy expenditure on the weekend is generally also a lot lower and your energy intake goes true. up. Especially that is true. Friday's date night. It's glass of wine. It's oh, after the glass of wine, the the desserts start rolling in, and you know, it's like that's just that's life. That's how it happens. Yeah, yeah, that is does tend to be how it happens. I've got I've got one more question for you, Brad, and maybe two, maybe two, but one for sure. And this is about uh, what's your take, like. Again, we're going to common questions that are coming up to us where are you, do you find, do you see any of the research? Is there something about highly processed foods that are in fact adversely affecting the health and well-being of us as a society? So there's, there's a couple ways to answer the the question. I think the first one is the right. Yeah. The, The research is very clear that people who consume diets that are heavy and highly slash ultra processed food consume substantially more calories than people who consume diets that have very minimal amounts of processed food. Um, Mm -hmm. This has been shown at like observational level data. So you take like food frequency questionnaires, you interview people, you just do observational studies all the way down to like metabolic ward studies where you basically trap people in a what's the equivalent of a prison, but you're in a hospital. It's like they, you live in a metabolic ward, you have all of your food, like it's measured how much you eat. 
Um, and we know that people who consume diets that are higher in processed foods consume substantially more calories. And it's like to the neighborhood of 500, 700, 1,000 calories a day, which you know is 3,000 to 7,000 calories more a week, which is a lot, right? That's hundreds of thousands of calories more a year than people who consume diets from, um, you know, that have less processed food in it. So that's, that's pretty abundantly clear. Um, now the other side of that is, are there aspects of ultra processed foods outside of them making you eat more and their calorie dense and things like that, that make them inherently more likely to add body fat per se? Um, the evidence there suggests like not really, right? So if let's say you were to consume the same amount of calories and you had the same energy expenditure and you had a higher processed diet versus a lower processed diet, your likelihood of gaining weight is basically the same between them. Unfortunately, when you kind of back that idea out into the real world, it doesn't tend to work like that. Um, because one... One of the things that you see in, especially in the nutrition literature, is habits stack. And what I mean by that is generally people who tend to consume higher processed diets are also the people who tend to consume more alcohol, who are also the people who tend to be smokers, who are also the people who tend to live more sedentary lifestyles, you know, who, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's very rare that you would find, um, except for like your, professional athletes because this is just how they all eat um if you've ever worked with professional <laughs> athletes you know it's like they would live on fried chicken and mcdonald's if, if they could um but like outside of that group of people is people who like your friends who are marathon runners who are super into their health like they just don't eat ultra processed foods like all those habits generally tend to stack and this is what we see in, in the nutrition research literature, right? One of the best examples of this is, I'm sure you remember this a couple of years ago when that paper came out that was like, hey, people who drink, you know, diet soda are way more likely to, you know, oh, have, yeah. type, type, have type 2 diabetes. And if you actually look at the paper, it's like, that's true, but the people who have the highest diet Coke consumption also consume 700 calories more per day. They also don't go to the gym. They also smoke. They also eat ultra-processed foods. And the people who had the lowest diet soda intake ate very little processed foods, consumed way fewer calories, didn't smoke, and were physically active. So it's like you start to see how these habits stack through people. Yeah, uh, that is a very insightful. It's a great thing. And then that kind of leads me to another point, which is just a frustration of mine where the World Health Organization had pointed out and said something about the diet sodas being uh, adverse to your health based off of this information, that they can lead to type 2 diabetes. So they're, they're saying correlation and they have made a, a very um, a strong statement by backing it and saying that this correlation is there so it must mean causality and you're saying that it's likely not the cause that it is indeed a correlation based off stacked behaviors yeah and we see that a lot in the nutrition research like it, that's it's very common it happens in almost all of these kind of association with outcome studies is the, the habits stack pretty much across mm. the board Gotcha. Well, I, I, you are absolutely right because uh, when it comes to eating 
foods and highly processed foods because I find highly processed foods to be absolutely delicious. Um, and when uh, I had my wife, I, she goes, do you want anything from the, the, the store, not the restaurant, the store? And I was like, you know, we'll get sometimes chips or things that look like they're healthier, but they are also like, I can't open a box of wheat thins and then close it with wheat thins back in the box. Like for you me, I'm just like, whole box. so good. Uh, so it's like, can you buy some carrots? I said, didn't yeah. you have to be baby carrots? Like, can you just get carrots? Uh, and so today uh, I ate three servings of carrots based off what was on the thing. And each serving was 30 calories. I ate 90 yeah. calories of carrots. I cannot stop at 90 calories of wheat thins or tortilla chips or like, that's just, but 90 calories in carrots with some hummus. I was like, I'm good. I mean, and in fact, it's a lot of food. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot more food with it. It's so, and it's, yeah. it's wild when you think about how much money goes into the development of a lot of these foods and they're all designed yeah. to drive consumption. Right. I mean, that, that was what we learned in the seventies from a lot of the, the food science research, right. Is, and it, this came out of, um, kind of originally some animal research, but like the very hyper palatable foods that we've developed, like there's a lot of food science that's gone into, Hey, how do I make people consume more food because i can double triple quadruple my profit margins if i can sell four bags of chips versus one it's way more money true true uh let me go back to the processed foods one of the things i wanted to and this may not be your world but i want to bring it up um is that really one of the things that you specifically talked about was equating calories and if you're equating calories then it doesn't really make a difference um but let's move past weight, right? And yeah. let's move towards health, right? Are there, if we're looking at this, right? And uh, I'm I'm eating those just a bunch of tortilla chips and and the the things that uh, are delicious, but that becomes majority of my meal. And then I have a lot of processed meat on a lot of processed breads and having sandwiches and things. Does is there an association then from these highly processed foods where it's hit after hit of the highly processed foods that has an adverse effect on our health not and we're not talking about weight gain at this point we're talking about actual health like is there cardiovascular risk dietary uh diabetes metabolic things like that so this is a this is a great question and it's kind of the million dollar question um mm. and i'll give you my yeah, how i and how I interpret the research and the data and kind of understanding, you think about it from like a risk perspective. If you kind of take the idea of let's call it energy balance and food quality, and you kind of try to separate them as much as you can, um, the vast majority of chronic disease risk and overall mortality risk is subsumed by the BMI metric, right? Um, and we'll just use that as the metric, but like basically carrying excess body weight, body fat, et cetera, subsumes most of that risk with food quality versus food quantity, right? It's a vast majority of it. So if we can take that out, 
Um, and we can just say, Hey, okay. Once we understand that if you maintain a healthy body weight, most of the risk is, is handled when it comes down to the, the concept of processed foods and health risks, there are a few things that we can say with a high degree of certainty that appear to be true. One is if you have established cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension specifically, um, processed diets tend to be higher in sodium, which does carry increased risk if you have pre-established hypertension. So reducing the processed foods from your diet that way is a great way to reduce risk additionally. Um, when we talk about things like processed foods being higher in preservatives like nitrates, stuff like that, the data there doesn't really appear to show any meaningful risk for people. Um, it's, it's just, it doesn't show up. Now, whether that's because so much of the risk is already taken up by all the other factors that that's so small, we can't detect it. That may be it. Um, the fatty acid content of processed foods versus unprocessed foods does appear to, to matter a little bit, right? Um, so processed foods generally tend to be higher in uh, trans fats, which carry cardiovascular risk. They do appear to be higher in saturated fats um, just because they're stable at room temperature, right? Your butter is solid, your olive oil is liquid in your house, so they're used more heavily in processed foods. Saturated fat per se doesn't appear to have large increases in cardiovascular risk, right? In fact, it's fairly stable. But what we do know is replacing some of that saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats or monounsaturated fats reduces cardiovascular risk. So trying to think about like, okay, can I swap some of those, that fatty acid profile in my diet is a way to decrease risk in addition to, to body weight modification. Um, so those are kind of the two big things to know about processed foods versus unprocessed foods is the sodium content. If you have established hypertension or other cardiovascular risk factors and the fatty acid profiles of the foods that you consume. Um, Can you do a brief tutorial as to why the sodium, why does that affect? Cause we hear like if you got a heart disease, you have to be careful about the sodium that you take in. What's a, what's a brief tutorial on that? Um, essentially higher sodium intake in your diet will either cause your hypertension to get worse or it'll kind of maintain a higher level of blood pressure. Um, higher blood pressure increases your risk of cardiovascular events, right? Um, and the way it, it's very simple is kind of the old adage in medicine is where salt goes or where sodium goes, water follows. So if you're consuming more sodium, your body is retaining more water. That's just putting more pressure on the pipes in your body. Oh, I see. Yeah. That makes sense. <clears throat> Yep. All right. And then the other thing that you mentioned, which goes right into my last thing, which is uh, the amount of fat that you have. And my question is honestly, why is it so delicious? Why is fat so delicious? Um, my, my opinion on this is we're, as humans, we're still products of kind of evolutionary pressure, right? And for vast majority of our history is we only survived if we ate food and fat is very, very calorie dense. So our brains are wired to like calories. So fat kind of has, it's the mouthfeel, it's the energy density. It's all of those things that kind of drives us to want to consume that because it's, it's very high calorie density for like per gram. So 
that's that's probably the main reason why we're so wired to like it. That's what I thought you were going to say, and that works for me. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is the, our guest, Brad here today. Brad, if you could let them know just uh, uh, if they want to reach out to you, learn from you, learn more about the macros, things like that, can yeah. you just uh, give, a, give a plug for yourself? Um, you guys can find me on Facebook um, or Instagram. Just look up my name. Uh, shoot me a message. Always happy to answer questions. You can find us at macrosinc.net is our website. Um, my email is brad.deter at macrosinc.net. If anybody has nutrition questions, career questions, or just random questions, let me know. Perfect, Brad. Thank you so much for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for sticking it out. A little bit longer episode, and it was mostly to satiate me because I wanted to learn from Brad. So when I get these opportunities, I do so. I hope that you learned some information, uh, learned a little bit today too from it. Uh, with that being said, you want to reach out to me, feel free to hit me up on Instagram and threads at dr.rickritchie, or you can email me, rick.ritchie at nasm.org. Thanks for listening. Keep inspiring people to fitness. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.